0: Good day, and welcome to the Transatlantic Trade Partnership conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question by pressing star and one on your touchdown phone. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Ilana Solomon. Please go ahead.
1: Great. Good afternoon, all, and thank you for joining this telepressor. I am Ilana Solomon of the Sierra Club's trade Representative. And I'm joined by several colleagues to discuss the first round of negotiations that start today for a new trade pact between the United States and the European Union, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. So For many years, U.S. and EU corporations have been pushing for negotiations that would remove critical public interest safeguards, such as environmental and food safety standards, which governments and corporations now refer to as trade irritants. This trade pact will go beyond traditional trade issues such as tariffs and will affect standards and regulations that affect our day to day lives, things like our jobs, the safety of our food, and the chemicals and the products we use. So, here with me to discuss these implications are Lori Wallach from Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, Celeste Drake from the AFL CIO, Karen Hansen Kuhn from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, and Bill Warren. From Friends of the Earth U.S. The Sierra Club is very concerned that our climate, our water, and our air could be put at risk by this sweeping trade agreement. We are particularly concerned about including investment rules in the pact that would give broad rights and privileges to foreign corporations at the expense of communities, workers, and the environment. For example, the pact will likely include provisions potentially including the controversial Investor-State Dispute Settlement System that would allow corporations to sue American and European governments in private trade tribunals over laws and policies that corporations allege reduce their profits. These investment rules, included in previous agreements such as the North American Free Trade Agreement, have allowed corporations to attack a host of critical environmental and public health policies related to mining safety, safeguards against toxic chemicals, and more. In short, these rules could erase vital public health and safety standards simply because foreign corporations argue they would lower their profits. The Sierra Club strongly opposes the inclusion of investor state dispute settlement in this pact and any rules that open the door to trade and investment lawsuits that toss the public interest out the window. Trade pact also has the potential to significantly expand hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, across the United States by increasing U.S. exports of liquefied natural gas to Europe. The EU is a major importer of natural gas and is eager to import gas from the United States. The natural gas industry in the United States is equally interested in selling its fracked gas to Europe. This trade pact could strip the United States government's power to manage its own exports by forcing the United States to automatically approve all exports of U.S. liquefied natural gas to the EU without any review or any conditions. An expansion of natural gas exports would require more dangerous fracking across the United States, with significant threats to our water, air, and climate. Increased exports could also triple the price of our energy. Therefore, it is essential that this pact leaves room for the United States to decide whether exporting American liquefied natural gas is in the interest of the communities and families in the United States We cannot afford unchecked exports of fracked gas. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Lori Wallach.
2: Thank you, Ilana. Public Citizen is concerned about the direction of these negotiations because there were two different competing visions for how this agreement could be formulated. The public interest agenda was to see an increase in consumer and environmental safety standards given in this agreement, unlike some of our past agreements with developing countries, the European standards in some areas are superior to the U.S. standards. Instead, Corporate agenda that has been promoted by what was the Transatlantic Business Dialogue, recently renamed the Transatlantic Business Council, since 1997 of the transatlantic free trade agreement rolling back the strongest food safety, financial, and other consumer safeguards on either side of the Atlantic, has become the official approach. Because already tariffs are very low between our countries, on average lower than 3%, the prospective gains projected for this agreement ostensibly come from removing consumer and environmental safeguards. Number one, it is very speculative what alleged economic gains could be wrought. None of the normal modeling with respect to new market access from tariff cut supplies in this context. Number two, the modeling that has been done with respect to estimating efficiency gains from cutting regulatory standards does not consider any of the downsides of removing important safeguards. In no place is the economic downside more probable than in rolling back important financial regulations. We've seen with the global financial crisis, which has slammed the U.S. and Europe, with slow growth rates and high unemployment maintaining to this day that we cannot have a trade agreement undermining our best financial regulations. Yet, in this instance, the European corporate demand aligned with Wall Street is to allow what is called mutual recognition for any European firm meeting the European lower financial regulatory standards to be able to operate here without meeting U.S. standards. Yet U.S. taxpayers could still be held liable when these firms with weaker regulation wreak havoc here. The Obama administration has opposed the European demand to have a specific regulatory cap agreement, as will be negotiated with food standards and chemical standards, and the European Union is fighting back. But the Obama administration is willing to have what is called financial market access rules. Under this proposal, five core areas of financial regulation would be banned. Limits on size, bans on risky products such as derivatives and conditions of specific financial structure. Worse, all of these limits and regulation would be enforced through the investor state system, where private financial firms would be empowered to directly sue our governments demanding taxpayer compensation for any financial regulation that they believe undermines what would be extraordinary investor rights to be included in this agreement. This is particularly outrageous, given the U.S. and the European Union have amongst the most robust property rights and court systems in the world. There is no purpose for having private enforcement nor a rollback of our financial standards to an ostensible trade agreement. Thousands of U.S. and EU corporations that are cross-registered now would be empowered to attack our domestic consumer regulations, including our financial safeguards, if this agreement is to be completed on the agenda it's being launched on today. Thank you.
1: Thank you,
3: Larius. Celeste? Um, the AFL-CIO believes these talks with the EU provide a unique opportunity to advance democracy, sustainable development, and working family protections within a trade agreement an opportunity that, if squandered, will likely result in the kind of wage suppression and labor market degradation on both sides of the Atlantic that America's workers have experienced with prior trade agreements such as NAFTA. Unfortunately, we have no reason so far to believe that USTR enters these talks today with an agenda that will vary greatly from the recent agreements that it has concluded, such as that with South Korea. Thus, while we have advocated for strong labor environmental, consumer, and regulatory protections for this agreement, we caution against unwarranted optimism. There are significant risks. In particular, the EU has indicated that it would like to go after Buy America across the board, meaning that the EU would like European-based companies to have equal access to government purchases at the federal, state, and local levels. Not only would such a provision jeopardize targeted economic development efforts, it would reduce federal and state government's abilities to stimulate their own economies as needed. Moreover, such a provision could put at risk other policy choices tied to government procurement, including requirements to use renewable or recycled goods, to pay living wages, or to advantage bidders that have better worker safety records. Another risk for workers is posed by the investor state dispute settlement process, which Laurie just described, and which we understand the administration intends to pursue. Both the AFL-CIO and its European counterpart, the ETUC, have called for the agreement to use state-to-state dispute settlement for the investor chapter. The AFL-CIO has also submitted a host of suggestions to reform the mechanism if it's included. But these suggestions would not make the mechanism acceptable to us, just less harmful. ISDS allows a special class of actors, that is foreign private enterprises, to bypass domestic courts and domestic laws to challenge democratically enacted laws and regulations, and we view it as a giveaway to multinational enterprises that is anti-democratic and lacks checks and balances. In particular, it would disadvantage U.S.-based businesses, particularly small businesses, who would lack access to the system for complaints about laws and regulations within the U.S. In addition, European multinationals could use such provisions to attack worker rights and protections, even including changes to the minimum wage. Um, That's why we're working with labor federations in Europe to avoid these pitfalls and to promote a family-friendly trade agreement instead. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Celeste. Karen, if you would begin.
4: Sure. There's evidence all around us of the need to change our food system to one that is locally controlled, biodiverse, and healthy for our bodies and the planet. There's some momentum along these lines already in the U.S. and E.U. The E.U. has chosen to strictly limit new technologies like genetically modified foods. In the U.S., voters in Maine and Connecticut have opted to label GM foods so they have better informed choices about what goes on their plates. Unfortunately, all signs are that this trade agreement is headed in an entirely different direction to promote the interests of multinational corporations over those of local communities. Those companies have complained that the EU's reliance on the precautionary principle, a basic provision enshrined in EU law and the Treaty of Lisbon, is unscientific and a trade irritant. The U.S. record at the WTO and other trade forums is clear. It is pushing hard to eliminate restrictions on GMOs, and questionable food additives like rectopamine, and to grease the skids for recklessly unregulated new technologies like nanotechnology and synthetic biology. All signs are that it will push for an agreement that locks in the lowest common denominator on both sides of the Atlantic. The EU for its part has stated that it wants to open government procurement contracts at all levels for all goods in all sectors. Will this include farm-to-school programs or other local procurement preferences for healthy, locally-grown foods? It's too early to tell, but it's an issue we'll be watching closely in the trade talks. Some 34 farm, faith, and environmental organizations from the EU and U.S. recently issued a joint statement expressing our concerns about this trade deal. We call on our governments to publish draft texts at every stage of the talks. We urge them to leave out the undemocratic investor state mechanism, and most of all, we reject any weakening of the precautionary principle and call for an open, transparent process to fix our broken food system. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Karen. And finally, Bill.
5: The transatlantic trade deal would give chemical companies and other multinationals an effective weapon to roll back Progress that's been made over the past decade in the European Union to protect human health and the environment from toxic chemicals. This is the well-known REACH program, R-E-A-C-H. Uh, furthermore, uh, we believe that the deal could result in a freezing in place of currently low, dangerously low U.S. standards for chemicals regulation. Uh, as Lori uh, noted earlier, uh, tariffs are pretty low now between the U.S. and Europe, and the negotiations are going to focus on so-called uh, regulatory barriers. And uh, again, this, uh, as Lori noted, it could result in a dangerous uh, deregulation, and this would include uh, deregulation related to toxic chemicals and. Uh, and furthermore, it would have, as I noted earlier, a chilling effect on future efforts uh, in the United States to enact uh, chemical regulation protection similar to REACH. Uh, just to sum it all up, the, the European REACH system should not be harmonized down to the low U.S. standards, namely the U.S. Toxic Substances Control Act. Uh, statute that has been characterized by the president's cancer panel as, quote, the most egregious example of ineffective regulation of chemical contaminants. And in the same way, uh, the uh, David Bitter bill now uh, uh, pending in the Senate uh, falls far, far short of of what's necessary to protect the public health and the environment and falls far short of European standards. So. Uh, Why should we care about a transatlantic trade deal that threatens chemical regulations? Some, there's a, a growing body of scientific evidence that clearly demonstrates that many of the chronic illnesses on the rise in the industrialized world are linked to toxic chemicals, exposure to toxic chemicals, cancer, learning disabilities, asthma, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, fertility problems, the list goes on. Just as one example, there are 216 chemicals associated with an increase in breast cancer, including 73 chemicals found in consumer products and food. Because of the effect on human health and the environment generally, Friends of the Earth strongly believes that we must not harmonize down European chemical regulatory standards to the low U.S. level, and we must not freeze in place the inadequate and dangerously low Uh, regulatory standards in the United States. Thanks.
2: Thank you.
1: That was Bill Warren, Trade Policy Analyst with Friends of the Earth. So before opening up the line for questions, I would just like to invite you all to learn more about this pact at a symposium hosted at the Sierra Club DC's office at 50 F Street Northwest tomorrow morning from 9 a.m. till noon and also available on live webcast. Please contact Dan Burns at d-a-n-i-e-l dot b-y-r-n-e-s at sierraclub.org if you are interested in learning more about this or joining in person or via webcast. Um, Operator, can you please open up the line for questions?
0: If you would like to ask a question, please press star and one on your touchdown phone. You may remove yourself from the question key by pressing the pound key. Again, star and one to ask a question. We'll pause a moment to allow questions to enter the queue.
2: And while we're paused, may I make, this is Lori Wallach, one more general announcement. On each of the organizations who have speakers on this call today's websites, you can find a letter that was sent out by U.S. and European organizations concerned to ensure that this agreement does not end up as a race to the bottom or a secret process. That that letter was sent today to President Obama and heads of state in Europe and to the European Union officials, and uh, it includes a broad range of U.S. and European groups.
0: And we'll go first to the side of Tim Devaney with Washington Times. Go ahead. Your line's open. Hi. Thank you. Um, I had a couple questions. the first one was, uh, for Celeste, you, you mentioned that you're working with labor organizations in Europe, and I just wondered if you could um, talk about that, and then the second question was for anybody um, there who wanted to answer, but uh, you all mentioned that um, the concern about the opening the government co- procurement process for contracts at all levels of government, and I was just wondering, uh, to me, I, I thought that was the idea to have a free market and to make it fair for all companies that it would be open. But can you explain more about why this is a problem for it to be open to European companies
4: as well?
3: I'm sure this is the last. Um, I'll go Next ahead and one. start. Um, we've been uh, working very closely with the uh, European Trade Union Confederation and have uh, also been in touch with some of the um, what are called global union federations and some national. Labor Union Federation, such as, so for example, the, the TUC is uh, is our British equivalent, uh, and okay. that. And we have, there's been a meeting already between President Trumpka and President Bernadette Sigal of the ETUC to discuss this trade agreement. We are working on and hopefully soon finalizing uh, a joint statement of principles. Uh, we've each put out uh, our own and are now working to craft one that you know, we can both, the AFL-CIO and the ETC can get behind. And, and we do share many of the same concerns, um, including the ones that, you know, that I that I was talking about. And in particular on the, the Buy America and the government procurement, from our point of view, um, government procurement isn't a market access issue. It's not about um, easing goods through the border or preventing goods to come through the border. It's really an issue of a, a government sovereign right to spend taxpayer money as it sees fit. And the U.S. is already uh, a member of the government procurement agreement through the WTO. We think that that's uh, the appropriate mechanism to uh, make further agreements or not, as the case may be with regard to government procurement. And rather than uh, just adding to it when the EU has, you know, said that it's got an offensive interest in knocking down all Buy America, you know, remaining laws, we believe that it's important for a state, a locality, for the whole government to be able to say, we are in an economic crisis, so we need to create jobs. The best way to create jobs in this particular instance, you know, whatever the policymakers are responding to, is to say we want to buy things made in America. Um, we want to have contracts with companies that operate in America and are creating American jobs. And when uh, Buy America is further restricted and procurement agreements are further enlarged, it limits the ability to do that, as well as to do other things, such as promoting uh, green procurement, uh, you know, that that kind of thing. And it's been, uh, you know, in cases where it's been, we have asked USTR to say, show us the balance. How many jobs have been created in the U.S. through opening our procurement, versus, uh, you know, jobs created elsewhere through opening our procurement. They haven't been able to show us any figures. So we're really, leery of the idea that simply calling government procurement a trade issue and reducing the reach of Buy America is really beneficial for workers.
0: Can I ask really quick, have have you worked with um, uh, any auto workers unions uh, specifically in Germany? Are they opposed to to this trade deal? Do you know?
3: Um, I couldn't tell you about the uh, auto workers in Germany specifically, but we um, at the AFL-CIO or, and the ETUC have not come out, you know, for or against.
1: Okay. Yeah. We're right. just
3: following. And, and we, the, m- most of the unions that we've spoken to, whether it's, you know, down at the union level of auto workers in Germany, um, haven't come out with a position yet, but I'd have to get you information okay. on that
2: exact union. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. We can go to the next question, please.
0: We'll go next. Just to, to add on the think.
2: procurement issue. of Americans with equal percentages of Democrats, Republicans, and independents support Buy America as an important policy tool to reinvest U.S. tax dollars in strengthening our country's economy and national security. It is one of the only government programs that enjoys such broad transpartisan support because taxpayers want to maintain control with what happens with their tax dollars. This is not a private market. This is actually a matter of taxpayer dollars and their use.
1: Thank you.
0: have the next question,
1: please.
0: We'll go next to Brian Wingfield with Bloomberg News. Go ahead, your line's open. Hi, everyone. Thanks for doing the call. Um, My question's for Ilana. Um, I know that the LNG export issue is also uh, a concern of the Sierra Club as, as it relates to the TPP talks. I'm wondering if there are any differences in between how this issue might be affected by the TTIP versus TPP and if there are any particular contracts in place now that may – I guess we do think that there will be considerably more LNG and more more fracking I guess as a result going to – toward European consumption.
1: Sure. Thanks, Brian. I can get you the exact numbers afterwards, but the EU on a whole is an even uh, bigger importer of natural gas than the countries in the TPP, even with Japan's joining. I think one other point that I would just highlight with the dynamic with the European Union is that one of the reasons that the European Union needs to import fracked gas is because many of their nation states, including France, have said no to fracking because it's too dangerous for their communities and for their environment. And we of course support that decision but we do not believe that the United States should be on the line for providing fracked gas to other countries because we too have the same concerns about the impacts on our air, water, land. Um, so like the TBP, this agreement could essentially strip away the ability of our government to oversee exports therefore paving the way to significantly more fracking across the United States Without any uh, review uh, conditions or assurances of protections in place.
0: Okay, thanks. We'll go next to Matt Shewell with Inside U.S. Trade. Go ahead, your lines open.
6: Hi, yeah, thank you all for doing the call. Um, uh, a number of you talked about, um, you know, how is this is going to be a race toward a deregulation, a race to the bottom, and uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, you know, to what degree do you think that uh, U.S. regulators uh, have actually, you know, bought into this whole idea of let's negotiate an international uh, agreement, uh, you know, dealing with a regulation where, you know, their mandates may, may not be as, as focused towards, uh, you know, the international uh, context and are more focused on, you know, meeting their, their mandates to, to, you know, protect that certain area. So um, is that buy-in there from the U.S. regulators that would be needed for this to actually go through, as you fear? And if so, which U.S. regulators are, you know, supporting this and who – which of them are actually going to be participating at the negotiating table or potentially even leading negotiating teams? Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Um, Lori, do you have – do you want to take a stab at that
1: first?
2: Yes, I, I certainly can't speak for where, where the brains of U.S. regulators are on TAFTA at the moment, but I can describe two indicators of how one might guesstimate. One, in areas where the U.S. standard is lower than the European standard with respect to environmental or health or consumer safety, the issue you're raising of conflicting with some statutory mandate isn't present. And in fact, historically, in some of those areas, the U.S. regulators from various agencies who are involved in some of these issues have been present at past trade negotiations, like for TPP, pushing for the U.S. version of the regulatory approach to become the standard in the agreement and minimum to have free passage, i.e. mutual recognition. So that U.S. products or services meeting our standards would be accepted even if they don't meet the other standard, or to make the official agreement standard the lower standard. And two areas that stick out dramatically with respect to, well, three areas really, food, so both the slaughter process issues, the growth of meats with artificial hormones, and third, the GMO issue, where the U.S. position, unfortunately, has been pretty systematically through USDA and through the USTR's agriculture negotiators to attack GMO labeling and segregation as a trade violation to require countries to accept our meat that is processed through standards that are less rigorous with respect to contamination and to accept our meat that is grown with artificial hormones. That's a really clear example of really hot conflict in this agreement, where if you look at the Transatlantic Consumer Dialogues letter, that's all of the big U.S. and EU consumer groups, many of whom, for what it's worth, support the WTO, are very concerned about this push downward of food standards. Another area is chemicals. As we, as we heard from our colleague from Friends of the Earth, the European system is far superior. It's a system that was put into place. With a lot of work, it updated a very old nineteen seventy system the u s still has the nineteen seventy system which grandfathered in basically every chemical that was in market at the time, which means a lot of stuff under your sink could probably kill you <laughs> in Europe, they're phasing it out. The third area is in privacy and it has to do with locations of servers, what kind of um, and what kind of processing of data that is, that is privacy protected can be offshored into where. The U.S. has really almost no federal law in this respect, they n- nor have we liability um, rules about what happens when data gets offshore and released. Europe has very strict directives. In those three areas, uh, from past agreements, I'm afraid we can expect that U.S. regulators are not only bought in, but in fact are pushing the weaker U.S. standard.
1: Thank you, Larry. We'd like to take one more question, and then we can get some information about how to follow up with the speakers.
0: We'll go last to Philip Brasher with uh, Congressional Quarterly. Go ahead, your Um Yes, uh, yeah, I wanted to follow up uh, on the uh, the GMO and
5: the other issues specifically with Karen. Uh, could you could you talk uh, talk a little more specifically about how you think U.S. Uh, this U.S. effort to um,
0: to, uh, to label GMOs might be affected by uh, by these negotiations?
4: Well, I think we can look both at what the U.S. is trying to do offensively, which is some of what Laurie mentioned. So, you know, the longstanding disputes with the EU over their own uh, GMO regulations. And then I think on on the other side, looking at the GMO labeling here, um, I think there are concerns that that could be counted as a technical barrier to trade, much in the same way that the uh, country of origin labeling. Uh, was considered, has been the subject of disputes at WTO. Um, I think in mentioning that, um, I'm not sure really that that's the direction Europe would push in. I think their concern seems to be defending their higher standards and the precautionary principle. Um, but I think the point is that in most cases, um, changes to raise standards start at the local level, start with that kind of initiative and work their way up. And what we don't want our provisions in the trade agreement, whether on procurement or sanitary and phytosanitary standards or investment, that lock us into those lower standards.
1: Thank you, Karen, and did you say there was one more question?
0: There is one question last in queue, yes, Um, it's from Sam uh, Gilson with Washington Tariff Trade Letter. Go ahead, your line's open.
5: Uh, Thanks, and thanks for the call. Under new uh, rules in Europe, any trade agreement that uh, the EU uh, comes into would have to go through the European Parliament, which has been, uh, I think, uh, sort of the advocate of many of the higher standards that uh, you've been talking about. Why do you uh, have such a dire feeling that um, the European Parliament would approve any of these worst-case scenarios that you're talking about? It would seem that, um, just going into this, that the European negotiators would have to Recognize they wouldn't get a deal approved by the parliament.
1: Great. Thanks for the question.
3: Um, I I can start. This is the last. I would just say that, you know, the European Parliament is going to be under tremendous pressure, just like the U.S. Congress, um, that, you know, by the time it gets to the point of approving or disapproving a deal, the deal is done, there are all these sunk costs that are being interpreted as you've got to take it or leave it, you know, please just hold your nose and accept the provisions that you don't like because otherwise we're saying no to the U.S., Uh, you're risking the relationship with the U.S., you know, the good will outweigh the bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, based on the um, EU's reaction to ACTA, uh, and, and some other things, we have a sense that they may be uh, more willing to say no to a trade agreement that is uh, secretive, non-transparent, and doesn't meet their standards. But it's never guaranteed. We think it's important to make sure that the public is involved, that they know what's being negotiated in, the, in their name, that they can put in their preferences, and what they want now so that we don't get into a situation where any legislator on either side of the Atlantic is asked to simply hold his or her nose and accept the agreement as is. And if we don't get the word out about the potential risks, um, the public on either side of the Atlantic won't have an opportunity to do that.
5: Have any of your groups reached out to uh, European parliamentarians to work together on this?
3: This is... Oh, I'll just say that the AFL-CIO has had uh, several visits, actually, with European parliamentarians uh, from the level of President Trumpka uh, all the way down.
2: Go ahead, Sorry. And I was just going to add that um, the situation, I would uh, say, is similar at the European Parliament to what would happen here in Congress if Congress delegated its constitutional trade authority via some broad mechanism like the old fast-track system – where the final agreement ends up with an enormous force of gravity, as Celeste described, barreling towards the legislature. Only under the European system post-Lisbon Treaty, there isn't even the vote Congress gets under our system to decide if they're going to delegate that authority. So having spent some quality time not just in Brussels, but in various European capitals since the announcement of the high-level... uh negotiation and the launch of the agreement uh i would say that there is a lot of concern in the european parliament that the commission negotiators who have directly opposite positions in a variety of these issues relative to the parliament are going to basically play a game of trade agreement chicken where as celeste described they try and bundle a bunch of poison pills and pack around it inevitability, geopolitics, alleged mythic gains and growth, and then try and steamroller the whole thing through the parliament. Now, that was tried with ACTA, and it failed. The geopolitical dynamic with this agreement, as everyone knows, is a centerpiece of it. There are more factors than specifically what's in the agreement, and that's a calculation I'm sure the commission is making and that the many members of parliament are concerned about, for instance as many people saw, including with the block of parliamentarians who are very supportive of TAFTA, there was a call to hold off this round of negotiations until there was a specific agreement on data privacy. And that was totally ignored by the commission, despite it being raised by the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, who is one of the strongest proponents of this agreement. So what the negotiations and the Commission are going to do with respect to what the Parliament will tolerate, I think, is a game of chicken that leads many of us to be very concerned, as are many of the parliamentarians.
1: Great. Well, thank you all. I think that will conclude our call for today, but if you would like to get in touch with any of the speakers and for more information on joining the symposium or parts of it tomorrow, please again contact Dan Burns at D-A-N-I-E-L. Dot at sierraclub.org. And thank you all so much for joining today's call.